This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Today's episode is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. CSB blends accuracy and readability, giving pastors a translation they can trust and lay people a Bible they can enjoy. Find out more at csbible.com. So yeah, let's back up to the beginning. Where where you come from? Have we started? Yeah, oh, oh yeah, sorry. We're good. We're started. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think I listened to your podcast, so I was I was I was waiting for the music or something. Okay. No, <laughs> Christine Kane is the founder of A21, a nonprofit established to fight human trafficking and slavery. A21 estimates that there are 20 million slaves right now. They work to rescue victims, prosecute traffickers, and raise awareness around the world. I come from Sydney, Australia, so from the great land down under. And so second generation migrant Greek. My parents were from Alexandria in Egypt. And when King Farouk got overthrown, they fled to Australia. But the kind of interesting twist to all that is I didn't find out until I was 33 that my parents were not my parents. But I found out at 33 that I was adopted. Wow. That was probably a stunner. Yeah. (laughs) It is. Well, you know, there's three of us kids, my older brother, George, who at the time he was 35, I was 33, and my younger brother, Andrew, was 30. So, you know, the three good Greek names, George, Christine, Andrew, you know, that we grew up thinking we were all biological, you know, biologically connected. And then my brother called me one day at lunchtime and he was crying and he said, Chris, I just got a letter from the government and it says that I've been adopted. Now, when he told me that, I started laughing because, you know, when you're growing up, you always tell your siblings they're adopted, like, you know, you're not not my brother. And uh, But I got like really defensive. I went, George, no way. I said, obviously they've sent this letter to the wrong person. Hmm. And um, I said, call this department. It was called the Department of Community Services in Australia. I said, call them back and tell them they've made a mistake. So anyway, about 10 minutes later, he calls me back. And this time he's sobbing. He goes, Chris, Chris, it's true. They told me the name of my biological mother, my biological father. They've got a whole file of my life. And um, he said, I'm going to go and confront mum. Now, my dad had died uh, of cancer when I was 19. So my mum mm. at this stage was 61, living at home alone. And so if you can imagine my big fat Greek wedding, that is my big fat Greek life. You know, I didn't speak English till I was five. Very, very Greek Orthodox culture. I'm thinking my brother's going to go and confront my mum. This thing is going to explode. So I jump into my car, race home. I walk into the front door at the minute that my brother is giving my mother this piece of paper, this document from the government, and I see my mum's face change. And I'm thinking, oh, my word, this is true. I felt like I was watching a movie. Mm. And my mum starts crying and she goes, George, I'm so sorry. All of the adoptions in Australia, they were closed adoptions 35 years ago. So we never thought you would find out. So you can imagine, Mike, in this moment, you know, my mum's crying, my brother's crying, the dog's crying. I mean, it's, it's a big fat Greek moment. Everything's happening. <laughs> I go, what do I do? Good Greek daughter, you're like, go to the kitchen. Food is the answer to life, the universe and everything. Make some baklava, get some, like, you know, I'm just like, whatever, avoid. I go into the kitchen. Now, it was under 15 minutes later, my mum walks into the kitchen. So she, of course, was speaking Greek to me. And in Greek, she says to me, Christina, since we're telling the truth today, do you want to know the whole truth? And I'm like two weeks out from my 33rd birthday, this like Monty Python show is unfolding in front of my very eyes. (laughs) 
I don't even know why I did this. I turned around, I went, I've been adopted too. There's a pine wobbler sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him. And everything he sings from the branch that he's sitting on, it seems to hush the leaves and the colors all around. Now first he sings and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated, conversations about faith and work. I'm Mike Cosburn. On today's episode, I talk with Christine about how she met God, how he gave her a sense of safety and identity in the midst of her own battles with pain and shame. We'll talk about Hillsong Church and the amazing work she's doing with A21. Quick warning, because of that talk, today's episode probably isn't for kids. What do you do when you suddenly at 33 discover you're not who you thought you were? And, um, you know, I didn't say anything for a couple of minutes, which uh, probably in and of itself is a miracle greater than the resurrection. You know, I just said (laughs) nothing. And then the first thing, like the very first thing that came out of my mouth, I looked at my mum, I went, "Um, am I still Greek? I just, (laughs) I'm like, I don't even know why like this. I thought I was called all of these names at school for all of these years. Right. And it better have been for us. And then, um, and only God could have done this in that moment. So sometimes you go, what would I do in a moment like that? Well, I can tell you what I did, you know, just out of my mouth. Now, remember, I I was raised in a very staunch Greek Orthodox culture, the first one in my whole family to sort of, you know, come into any contact with the Protestant faith and, and, Mm. and, you know, be born again. And so, but out of my mouth in that moment, I said, oh, well, mum, before I was formed in my mother's womb, whose ever womb that was, God knew me and he knitted together my innermost parts. He fashioned all my days before as yet there was one of them I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. And, you know, like that day, every fact that I thought to be true about my life changed. What my name was, my hair, every fact changed. And really to this day, you know, we're doing this podcast. I don't know the facts surrounding my conception. I don't know if I was the result of a one night stand. I don't know if I was, Mm. you know, the outcome of a rape or, or some ongoing adulterous affair. But although I don't know the facts, I do know the truth. And this is where I knew that I knew that I knew that I actually really believe this stuff because I knew that no matter what the facts are, the truth is Ephesians 2.10, that I am God's workmanship and I've been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand that I should walk in them. And I think in that moment in my mum's kitchen, while my brother's kind of having a meltdown, you know, my other brother, I mean, you could imagine it was shocking. And we grew up in this house for until I got married at 30. So I lived in one house with one set of neighbors on either side. So everybody knew, my cousins knew, neighbors knew. I think the real miracle is that nobody ever told us, you know, kind of growing up. For sure. It was like shocking. You feel like you and your brothers, have have you kind of made peace with this reality? And You know, it's been interesting watching both of our journeys. And then my younger brother, because what happened was my younger brother is the only biological child. So what happened was Mm. my mom got pregnant later. And, um, you know, back in those days, there was a lot of shame involved with that. Like, obviously, I was conceived in shame. So my biological mother, who I don't know her, but the only records that I was sent from the Department of Community Services was that she was a 23-year-old Greek woman living in immigrant housing in Australia. And 
And there would have been great shame, you know, in Greek culture back in 1966, pregnant out of wedlock. And the documents say that nobody knew she was pregnant, so she obviously kept it hidden. And then there was a great shame sort of in our culture for a woman not to be able to conceive a child. So I think my mother that adopted me carried the shame Mm. of that. And then you could only adopt back in Australia in those days, same religion, same nationality. So that's why you could only get, if you're Greek Orthodox, you had to adopt a Greek Orthodox child. There was not that many kids given up for adoption. Lots of reasons. However, it worked out, a lot of women probably wouldn't have carried a baby to full term if they got pregnant back in those days, if you were an unwed mother. And many Greek women wouldn't adopt children because there was a great shame associated Mm. with that. And so... You know, I think when you have that and the fact that I sort of experienced sexual abuse in my life for 12 years, there was a lot of shame in my background. You know, it was kind of like it it was the thing that I had to fight more than anything else to, to work through in my life. And I think because of my strong faith, I have gotten a lot of great help, great counseling, great prayer and the word of God. I I say that, you know, Jesus Christ certainly saved my soul. The word of God saved my mind. Mm. And so I, my passion for the word my passion for memorizing scripture, it's because it really, literally transformed my mind and transformed my life. And so, you know, I'm one of those people that go like, it just worked. (laughs) It just worked. And God did a deep work in my heart and my life. And certainly that's informed, no doubt, a lot of the work that I do around the world today. But that sort of knowledge and, and sort of for me, you know, I guess different theological terms like adoption mean a whole lot more for someone like me. Like you kind of like work through it and go, wow, I really have learned to understand what it is to be adopted into the family of God. What does it mean that Jesus can heal and restore? It wasn't only that Christine found out she was adopted. She came later to find out that the circumstances of her adoption were very dark. I got a letter from the government. The Australian government had a huge royal commission a few years ago into adoptions between 1958 and 1968. And what happened was, I mean, it was horrific, but there was a whole lot of forced adoptions through the Catholic adoption system and the state system. They were forcing single mothers to give up their babies for adoption. And the Royal Commission, just which I guess it'd be like a Senate inquiry here in America, Mm. it exposed horrific stories of women chained to beds, being forced to give birth, not allowed to hold the babies, not wanting to give up their children, but were given no option. And so I don't really know the whole story that my mum had. It would have been traumatic, there's no doubt, one way or another. Um, So I received a letter of apology from the Australian government, which I guess all the kids that were adopted in that period of time from the hospital that I was born into, because we were part of that era of children that were the forced adoptions. It is remarkable to think of that background and the way that it informs what you do now. I imagine there's so much of that was so formative. I mean, even in your 30s, when did, how old were you when you started A21? I was 41 when I started the work. We're 10 years old exactly this year. We were just celebrating 10 oh, years. Great. So it began to function as organization 10 years ago, but I began probably 12 years ago, around 40, to begin my research and do that. And you know, here's the deal that my birth certificate, so one year after I found out I was adopted, I got my birth certificate from the Australian government. Now, you know, it's quite bizarre when you've lived 33 years with what you think is your birth certificate. And then suddenly you get this document and on my birth certificate, where it says child's name, it's got typed in the word unnamed number 2508 of 19. And again, here's the word of God. In that moment, I think even more shocking for me than finding out I was adopted 
was seeing that document that just says child's name unnamed 2508 of 1966 just got you know it was like yeah. the little order of shame that was already in my head began see christine your mother didn't even want you she didn't even name you mm. you just were a number you know that tape recorder we've all got that just begins in your mind yep. look i didn't even know this scripture was in the bible but i just kind of in that moment just kind of felt this sense open my bible to isaiah 49 verse 1 which back then you know i was reading new king james and in the new king james isaiah 49 verse 1 says from the matrix of your mother I have named your name, which is from the womb of your mother, I've named your name. So I'm sitting there in that moment and I'm holding my birth certificate that says unnamed 2508. Mm. I'm holding the word of God in my other hand in Isaiah 49 verse one that says from the womb of your mother, I have named your name. Mm. And I just felt, Christine, it's gonna take as much faith to believe this black and white ink on paper as this black and white ink on paper. And the way you decide in this moment which one you're going to place your faith in is going to determine the trajectory of the rest of your life. Mm. And I thought, they're both black and white ink on paper. They're both documents. Which one am I going to believe? And for me, I've had sort of several of those moments in my life, which is I'm going to choose to place the truth of the Word of God above the facts of my circumstances. Yeah. And somehow in that moment, that carried me. And um, I think today, you know, I'm rescuing the victims of human trafficking. Well, many of those are from orphanages in Albania, Romania, Greece. Mm. Now, just imagine, Mike, if I was not born in Australia in 1966, where there is a rule of law, where there's a proper adoption system set up, right. if I, I could have been one of these kids left in a Greek hospital up in the in the north of Greece with no documents, just unnamed number 2508, exactly the same scenario as we confront today. A trafficker goes in, has got an agreement with the person running the orphanage, just take is given the child or says, this child is my, my niece or you know my friend. And, hence a whole system happens. So there is only literally one degree of separation between me and any one of the victims that we rescue. And for me, numbers are numbing, numbers yeah. are dehumanizing, numbers are desensitizing. It is so easy to ignore suffering when it's nameless and faceless. But the minute you put a name on it or a face on it. So, you know, if I had my birth certificate here in front of you and I just go number 2508 of 1966, you kind of go, oh, well, you know, okay, wow. Yeah. But the minute you go, that's Christine Kane. It just changes everything. And so I'm hoping to humanize those numbers, the astronomical numbers that are involved in trafficking, you know, 40 million slaves and mm. and say, to God, there are no numbers. To yeah. God, every, everyone is a name created in his image. And just in case I ever do get a tinge of compassion fatigue, I just need to look at my own birth certificate and it quickly reminds me how wow. real this is. So you grew up Greek Orthodox. How did your faith evolve? How did you, how did you come to know the Lord? What, when did that yeah, turn happen? It was definitely a journey. I, I, you know, I'd say I always had belief in God. There's no doubt about it. Now, I don't know if you know much about the Greek Orthodox Church, but it's a three-hour liturgy in ancient Greek that nobody speaks. So, you know, <laughs> even for the best of us, that can be taxing. But for 14 years, I did that every Sunday because to be Greek is to be Orthodox. And when you're an immigrant, your whole nationality, your whole identity is tied up around being Greek Orthodox. I think even today, Day, we have so many different things happening in Greece with A21 and a church we're involved with there, but it's still so woven into the fabric of being Greek. And mm -hmm. so 
at school in Australia, we used to have these religious education classes that were compulsory. One hour a week, you had to go. And you only had two choices, Catholic or Protestant. And I wasn't allowed to go to the Protestant. They didn't really know what Greek Orthodox was, but they just sort of put me in with the Catholic guys. But I used to sneak out of class to go over to the Protestant one because it was just more interesting to me as in I sort of understood what they were talking about. And even then I would go into church on Sunday and I really did try to listen. I remember as a kid, you know, the priest, the whole liturgy is happening, the whole nine yards. And I would look around. I didn't know they were martyrs, but I'd look at all the icons. And I used to think, man, what do you have to do to get your picture on the wall? Like I wanted to be on the wall. And then I would go to kind of catechism classes and they'd say, you know, you have to be martyred or killed. And so that kind of, I thought, okay, I don't want to be one of them. So I knew (laughs) I didn't want my picture on the wall, but I really didn't understand much because I had a couple of things not going for me. I I didn't really understand it. I could recite the liturgy. Like, I mean, even now I was, last Sunday I was in Greece at a baptism and I can, like, it just comes, it just starts coming out. I'm chanting with the priest, but also a woman, you know, we weren't allowed to read the Bible. Only the priest did that. We could kiss it, but we couldn't read it. And it's so built on the Levitical priesthood and so Old Testament in so many ways. So then I would sneak out into the Protestant classes and I was fascinated, fascinated with this Jesus that they talked about. And then at about 16, a group, which was in Australia called the God Squad. So they were Christian bikers, mm. came in and it's everything you would imagine. You know, they, <laughs> they came in and gave a gospel presentation but, you know, sometimes we laugh at that stuff, but man, it worked. I bet you there are lots of testimonies like me where you yeah. just go, it was the first time in a way that I understood. I really just heard the gospel presented and it just resonated. Now, I remember they get, I went, and again, for me, it's all a journey because I didn't really kick in till I was 22. But at this point at 16 was the beginning of an authentic speaking journey. I went back, uh, they gave me a Bible and I remember my parents took it straight off me. It was like, only the priest can read this, oh, wow. you know, especially a woman couldn't do that. So it was, it was sort of like, I see so many opportunities where God broke in and it could have been the beginning of something awesome, but sort of tradition and culture and just what I came out of stopped it in its tracks. My dad was diagnosed with cancer when I was 18 and he died when I was 19. That triggered great pain in my life because the real stable force in my life was my dad. Mm. And, you know, I'd experienced abuse, certainly not from my immediate family, but from people that had access to my house all the time that my parents Mm. trusted for men that, you know, should never have violated not only my parents' trust, but my body. And back in then, you got to go back in the 70s and 80s, nobody was talking about abuse in Australia. I I had never heard the word abuse. It was just... It was, I think it was in the early 90s, I was a youth worker and I went to a seminar and it was the first time I heard that word and they had begun a big campaign in Australian schools and in the media to kind of really raise awareness about abuse. And that I remember being in one of those seminars, just weeping, thinking, and finally there was a name for what happened to me, you know, and, yeah. and that began my healing journey. But before that, I was so broken because of that abuse and had kind of learned to survive with defense mechanisms like we all do. But, you know, it was ongoing. It was 12 years of abuse at the hands of four men. So I had developed a lot of patterns of destructive behavior. I think, Mm. you know, you just go, man, if I had just had some help a lot earlier on, I wouldn't have made a lot of the mistakes that I made. So my, my journey from 18, my dad being diagnosed till 21, I just spiraled from one bad relationship into another, um, it's just a very broken life. My heart though, I would come across Christians. I mean, I you know, backpacked around the world for a couple of years. I did all of that sort of stuff and I would meet Christians and I was always wanting to know more about God. But I thought 
I was just so broken. God could do nothing with somebody like me. I just thought, you know, and I had a very orthodox concept of I must be going to hell. I've committed the unforgivable sin. I've been so promiscuous, you know, of my own volition, just chosen so many wrong things. At 21, I was in Zurich and my life was just a mess. And I was in a relationship, which I think is was a byproduct of just my brokenness. And I was so confused about my gender identity for a really long time. And I think the abuse added to that, the the things that I didn't even know I was carrying, the abandonment, the rejection, the stuff, like a lot more makes sense to me now that I know yeah. that I was adopted and then lied to 33 years. You just see so many broken pieces and the whole yeah. immigrant experience. We were very marginalized in Australia for being Greek. I mean, just ridiculed and beaten often because I've just had a very negative experience. I think all of those things together led to me being very deeply broken and relationally very, very wounded. So at 21, I'm sitting on this balcony. It was my 21st birthday in Zurich and I had just reached the end. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's the movie that you're thinking about. It's like, and I literally said out loud to God, I know that I have committed way too many sins and I'm going to hell, but I'm going to spend the rest of my time. Now, you've got to imagine my concept is a Mother Teresa. I'm Greek Orthodox. That's all. I'm thinking that's what you become if you're going to serve God. But I'm going to spend the rest of my life helping people not have to go to hell like I'm going to go. <laughs> like That was wow. my kind of um, my theology at the time. It's like, you know, of course I'm going because I've blown it big time, yeah. but I'm going to help hurting people and that's what I'm going to do. So I went back to Sydney thinking I'm going to be, Mother Teresa is the only concept I've got of a woman that anything a woman could do. Uh, I use the word ministry. I didn't even know there was such a word, but I'm thinking (laughs) Mother Teresa, if you're going to help anyone and be a Christian. And so I still hadn't been to a Protestant church. I went, I started volunteering. King's Cross in Sydney, Australia is kind of, you know, a place where a lot of broken people end up. And so I would go to university, finish my degree in English and economic history. And then at night I would volunteer for this organization called Jesus Saves. And basically we would hand out coffee and sandwiches to really broken people in the red light district. And so from, that was 21. Um, And then someone about eight months later invited me to a church, which at the time was called Hills Christian Life Center, which the world now knows as Hillsong Church. Um, And so it was a a church of a couple of hundred people in a warehouse in the back of nowhere in Sydney, Australia. (laughs) So you got to remember, I'm like this Greek Orthodox experience. And suddenly I walk into this warehouse that was shocking enough. Like, where is the steeple? Where is the incense? Where's the priest? Where's the icons? I walk into this warehouse, it's got music. I'm not even like, you know, what is this? And I I, I don't know how to explain it to you. I am one of those stories. I walked in on a Sunday night at six o'clock, encounter Christ in a radical life transforming way, very personally, and never left. Everything changed. Before we get back to the episode, I want to take a moment to tell you about our sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB captures the Bible's original meaning without compromising clarity. An optimal blend of accuracy and readability, this translation helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word and inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is for everyone, for readers young and old, new and seasoned. It's a Bible pastors can preach from and a Bible you can share with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Reading your Bible shouldn't feel like a chore. Learn more at csbible.com. That 
began the process, because now I was now in a church where I was being discipled, where I was being taught the Word. I could get help and counselling and process all of the brokenness of the years before that and was given an opportunity to use my gifts, which I didn't even know I had them, you know, and, and yeah. sort of became a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And out of that has come a 12 propel, you know, my teaching ministry around the place. That That's all come out of 31 years in one church. I mean, it must have been amazing to just just to be part of the ride of watching that church become what it's become, especially if you were in that early. How old was the church when you got there? Three years old. Okay. And it was, you know, not big before. I mean, I was there the first time Shout to the Lord was sung before the world, <laughs> you know, like um, before any of us knew it was going to become Shout to the Lord. Right. But, you know, we... We didn't even have any cassette tapes of music when I started going. It was just in a warehouse. It yeah, was like, yeah. but the same sort of like a sense of God anointing, whatever term you want to use, it, it was there in the warehouse with a few hundred people, hmm. um, as much as, you know, what the world experiences today. It, it, but it was all of that that brought me in and unconditional love. And it's where I learned grace. And two things, grace and the power of the word. You know, the, I mean, Hillsong, of course, is so known for the music, but we are really word-based. Like, you know, you're kind of like very, very committed and devoted to the scriptures. And certainly that is what renewed my mind in, mm -hmm. in many ways. I'm sure in the, the whole journey, you mean, you talked about it already a little bit, the journey of dealing with your shame. And I'd, I'd be interested in just hearing like, what was that process like of, I'm sure it was an inward process. I'm sure it was outward at the same time with other people. Like, I think it was everything, and I'd say it's ongoing, you know, because I think yeah. at most of the pivotal moments of my life, God would unveil deeper levels of healing that would happen, you know, from being single and working through one layer. There was another layer when I met the man who was going to become my husband, and then we yeah. got married. That was a whole different level of working in when I got pregnant the first time, when I had my second child. I think there's always layers when I started A21. I mean, I could yeah. never have picked, but God would continue to do that ongoing journey. And I think anyone that's read anything that I've written or listens to me would agree, I'm very committed to the inward process. Like God certainly has given me a great reach, but I think there's a direct correlation between the depth with which I've allowed him to work internally and externally. And I think, you know, shame is the biggest issue. I always say in, in Genesis 2.25, the thing that God wants us to know of all the things, he says, Adam and Eve were naked and they knew no shame. Like, I mean, yeah. He could have picked anything to tell us, but it's like, I, I need you all to know you were never created to know what this felt like. Yeah. So if I, if I was the enemy, the one thing I would want to undermine the bride of Christ with is the one thing they were never designed to carry the burden of, which would be shame. And I think shame is at the root of so much of our brokenness, our insecurity. I think so much of what's going on in the world today and the anger and the divisiveness and the yeah. chaos and the venting is actually deeply rooted in shame in one way yeah. or another. You know, the enemy comes in just always to undermine that. Did God really say? Like, if you don't know who you are, you know, did God really say? And then I think, you know, God says, where are you? Who told you? I, I've had this 30-year journey of God exposing different, but Chris, where are you? Where are you? Coming in constantly. Um, where'd you go into hiding? You know, you, and and who told you that lie? Where did you mm. build? It doesn't change from the Garden of Eden till today. I think in one way, shape or form, it all keeps coming back to multi-layers of where are you? Who told you? So Chris, find out where you've gone into hiding and where did that lie take root in your mind? And so I think the fact that I've been deeply committed to not hiding that, you know, because you can hide behind your gifts and you can hide behind ministry. That's probably one of the greatest places to hide. For sure. But I was way too broken 
And here's the good thing, because we were in the back of Australia, there was no Christian subculture. So it's been fascinating living in America because I've had to go, I mean, I, I went to Wheaton, you know, I'm doing a, I'm in grad school at Wheaton because I needed to understand the American evangelical church because I'm like, whoa, this thing is a very different. So I think God <laughs> saved me because Australia is so secular, humanist. Like, I mean, when you got saved, you had to be saved because it was not cool to be a Christian you couldn't make money being a Christian. Mm-hmm. You could write a book, but honey, no one was going to buy it. There wasn't enough Christians to, to, to kind yeah. of like so. And on top of that, I'm at Hillsong, which back then was not like in the epicenter of, you know, a love affair with the evangelical church. And so you were just left alone. So God saved us. Mm-hmm. And then it was like, I didn't know you had to put on a face or a mask because it was like I was desperate for healing. So I think when there's no Christian subculture, so you don't know that there's any game to play, you don't have to wear any kind of mask and you just like go, I need Jesus. And also my family was Orthodox. So they were not rolling out the red carpet for me. Like They were not thinking I did a great thing. I remember they sent the Archbishop of Athens and the Archbishop of Sydney to put me in de-brainwashing classes wow. for six weeks because they thought, like it was when I got water baptised, I mean, my mother tore up my birth certificate, which now doesn't really matter because I found out it's not my real one. But anyway, so she tore <laughs> up my, my, my birth certificate because in her mind, that was blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is the unforgivable sin. Huh. So my family didn't talk to me for three years when I truly got saved and, and baptised. So it wasn't that, it was a cool thing to do. I mean, it cost me my friends. It cost me my family. So when I got saved, I got mm. saved. Like Jesus saved me. Mm. So I was all in, I, you know, I was all in in a secular humanist. You know, we think America's becoming progressive. We, we, we're way beyond that. And so is, you know, Europe, so many places that, that I've kind of ministered. So I spent my first 20 years of my ministry life mostly in Europe and Australasia. So when I stepped into kind of the American landscape, it was shocking to me to mm-hmm. think there is this entire subculture, language, lifestyle, industry that facilitates I mean, you could be a professional Christian. It, it just was like shocking to me. And right. um, and then a woman like me that is like radical, on fire, committed to evangelism and the lost and committed to the word and, you know, more zeal than brains, but still in the midst <laughs> of all of that, just like, who are you? Are you really a good wife? And do you really love your children? Because you just seem too passionate and too risk-taking and, yeah. you know, you're rescuing slaves and trying to, you know, kind of do a whole lot of other stuff. So it, it has been a journey kind of adapting to American culture. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's a place where it's a place where your faith doesn't cost you anything. And mm-hmm. your experience, you know, obviously your experience is quite different from that. To be as joyful a person as you are, the shame journey makes a lot of sense because you've been through, you've kind of gotten kicked in the teeth a few times over <laughs> by, <laughs> by life. I don't know, you said you said something a minute ago about shame and anger, and that's something my wife and I have talked about a lot. Like, I had a counselor one time talking to me and kind of said, yeah, you know, anger is always a secondary emotion, and underneath it is usually, you know, fear or shame. And you look at the horrible anger in our kind of in our subculture right now or in in America. And it's like, man, what if we found a way as a culture to deal with shame and to break down some of the barriers to that? So, you know, what would that what would that do to the temperature of political discourse and hostility towards Christians and hostility from Christians towards others and all of that? I mean, it could all it could look very different, I imagine. I think that is 
the biggest key. I, I totally agree with you because I keep coming back to that last verse before the fall, the last word, <laughs> and then, you know, shame. And I keep thinking it's always been an assignment of the enemy to shame people. And then I think even maybe passionate Christians, the way we've engaged with culture, you don't reach a culture by trying to shame a culture. You know, and yeah. I think we, we have not historically been great at, at connecting with culture, shaming anyone causes everyone to retreat. I mean, we, we see the example of it in scripture and I'm thinking, no wonder some of the world is hostile towards some forms of Christianity that they've encountered. You know, I stay a bit quiet on some of the stuff going on in social media because it breaks my heart, to be honest, more than anything. I'm like, you know, Christians shaming one another is just, I'm like, wow, that, that is what led to the fall I wish we would move on from that. And so I, I don't want to do that. I, when I wrote the book, Unashamed, I wanted people to see this is the reality of my struggle. And it's not just the struggle. Like people can accept, okay, Chris dealt with her shame from abuse maybe or abandonment, adoption, some of those things. But it's an ongoing thing. And I'm finding it every day in relationships I have now, in interactions and I think with where culture is and just the changing moral landscape and so many things that are happening, I think we're up for a whole new level of shame of even Christians being ashamed of being Christians. And I think no wonder yeah. Paul says, you know, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of his name. I think that's the next big thing up for us because a lot of us, some of the things that Jesus has said certainly do not connect very well with our culture today. And right. the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. There are certain things, certain hard truths. This is why I liked your book so much, mm. because you said it so beautifully, but I think shame is the big thing ahead for the church, not just in the current political debates that are happening, but just us not being ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think because 30 years ago, I already had to deal with that in terms of a culture that didn't except Jesus anyway, to get saved in Australia, to have been part of Hillsong in the early years when maybe the more established church kind of thought we were a fringe kind of group. You know, right. I, I had to deal with that shame. It was a different, you know, you weren't ever accepted by the established church. Yeah. Being a woman, a woman that is perhaps as, you know, kind of like I teach and there's certain things that I do. There are certain segments of the church that tried to shame me for that for a really long time. Being a Christian in a secular culture is no matter how kind you are, no matter how good you are, no matter how loving you are, no matter how grace-filled, you can have every fruit of the Spirit to the nth degree. Yes. But like it or not, the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. And there are certain things. We have a very inclusive gospel, but we have a very exclusive Savior. So no matter what we do, at the end of the day, that's going to be the litmus test. We can be loving about every issue on earth. We can be open-hearted, kind-hearted. We can agree to disagree on a whole lot of things. But yeah. that dividing line in the sand, is Jesus Christ the only way to God? I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Invariably somewhere that's going right. to, some people are not going to be very comfortable with that. So I'm kind of like, Christians, we've got to get some of this stuff right. So we stop shaming one another on things that are so irrelevant and secondary yeah. so that we together in love will not be ashamed of the gospel of his name on the stuff that's really going to matter right. two, three years from now, because that's where we're going. You know, I think at the end of the day, the degree to which you're not ashamed of the gospel is the degree to which you're free of shame in your own heart. Mm. Now, I think a lot of people that are standing on street corners yelling intolerant things, oh, yeah. they're, they're ashamed of the gospel. Even if they're doing it in the name of Christ, I'm thinking that's not the gospel we're talking about. But the true gospel at its core, to not really be ashamed of it 
means in some cases we're going to look a little bit like idiots in this culture. From your story, you had a heart for the marginalized and the underprivileged from when you were in your 20s and you were at King's Cross. Walk me through kind of what woke you up to human trafficking and slavery. And you know. Sure. I just had my second child, Sophia, and she was about a year old and I had her at 40. So, you know, I'm going to be 150 at her 21st. I'm like that. <laughs> and I was, uh, went to speak at a women's conference in Thessaloniki, Greece. And so I'm at Thessaloniki Airport, which tiny little airport. And this was right when Madeline was abducted. You you might remember there was a little girl in Portugal. Her Mm. parents were out to dinner and she was taken. It was like a major case um, in Europe. And Interpol obviously was on high alert because they were looking for this little girl. So I get off the airplane, I go to baggage claim. And right in front of me, there's these dozens of pictures on this poster of missing women and children. Now, because I read Greek, I could read what it was saying. You know, it was saying missing, missing. I'm like horrified thinking I traveled extensively. I'm horrified going, why is there so many? Like it was a disproportionate amount. There was Mm. dozens of missing children. So I called my friend who at the time was running UNICEF in Copenhagen and I called her and I said, what's going on in Greece? What is, you know, what is happening? And she went on to tell me that these were the alleged victims of human trafficking. So, you know, what do you mean human trafficking? And um, she begins to explain to me that slavery still exists on the earth today. I'm like, Chanel, have you not heard of the Emancipation Proclamation Act? Have you not? Like, I'm like, you know, this does not exist. I mean, this is where I was at 12 years ago. I'm like, this does not exist. This is like, no way. Long story short, I do some more research and find out not only does it exist, but it's the fastest growing crime worldwide after the trafficking of drugs and armaments is the trafficking of human beings. I, I was like flabbergasted. The only thing created in the image of God is people. And the one thing that is the fastest growing crime on the world is the, you know, the buying and selling of people. I, I didn't even know what to do with that. But how it really arrested me was when I was looking at those posters, I'm looking at all these children and all of a sudden there was a little girl. She was my daughter's age, but her name was Sophia. I just had my second baby. So, you know, when you're a mom, you've just had another baby, your hormones are all over the place anyway. And so I'm looking (laughs) and in that, this is the best way I can explain it to you, Mike, in that microsecond, I went from looking at a missing child to seeing my own child. Mm. And um, I just started weeping because I'm thinking, what must that mother feel like? I mean, the, the compassion and the empathy, it was so real to me. It was visceral. Like I was literally crying. Um, And, you know, when you look, you can look away, but when you see, you can't unsee. I mean, that was the deal. I couldn't unsee. And so I didn't know what to do. I knew nothing about it, but I knew I had a mouth and I knew I had the ear of a lot of the church across the world, dreams, you know, from evangelical to charismatic, Catholic, like the the whole nine yards. And Mm -hmm. so I just thought I'm going to start speaking about it. I didn't even know what I was going to say. Um, Out of that, one thing led to another. I met a lawyer in Thessaloniki in a church there and we just started. And then very quickly, very quickly, we started working with the Greek government. We had a girl that came into our care. We had a transition home given to us. And then one day I was in one of our homes and there was 14 victims and they were from 14 different countries like Uzbekistan, Georgia, 
Albania, Romania, Moldova. I mean, you know, and one of the girls was telling me how she'd come over to Greece. She'd been in a shipping container with 60 girls. The oxygen filtration system in the shipping container broke down. When they opened the container in Istanbul, 30 of the girls had died. They took the remaining 30 girls, all the, all the traffickers were dressed in law enforcement uniforms to break down the girls and break their trust in law enforcement, took them into apartments there by the docks in Istanbul and just raped them, you know, multiple times, didn't give them food. Two weeks later, they put them in those little boats to take them across from Istanbul to Athens to sell them into brothels. The Greek Coast Guard was going by and so that the traffickers wouldn't be caught with the girls, they threw them overboard. Oh now, these gosh. girls were from Northern Africa hadn't seen water in their life, you know, like, and now they're 25 of those girls drowned, obviously, because they couldn't swim. So by the time we got the five out of the brothel in Athens, it was just horrific. I mean, the trauma, the horror. As she's telling me this story, I'm thinking if I was not sitting here listening to this with my own ears, I, I, I wouldn't even believe it. Like it was just so traumatic. And this Russian girl was next to her who had just been rescued two days before. Now, you know, they don't trust us when they come into one of the transition homes because they don't even know if we're traffickers, if we're, you know, what, what right. this could be a holding place for them. So she, this girl says to me in Greek, you know, she's Russian, but she's obviously in Greece. So in Greek, she said to me, why did you come? And she's like trying to suss me out why you're here. And I begin telling her my own story, you know, of, of my past and abuse and just what Jesus has done in my life. And because in this case, I could tell them that like, I, you know, there's not in every case am I able to do this. But in this case, I was able to share my faith because of where we were. And so I started telling her about what Jesus had done in my life and this awesome God. And I'll never forget it. She says to me, as I'm talking about the goodness of God, the grace of God, she in broken Greek, but just with a thick Russian accent, she says to me, stop, stop stop. And she goes, stop talking to me. If this is true about your God, if what you are telling me is true about your God, then why didn't you come sooner? And that phrase, you know, for me, 10 years later, if you think, Chris, what gets you out of bed? Now we've got 15 officers around the world. My husband, right now I'm talking to you. He's just flown to Mexico. We're about to sign a major MOU with the Mexican government that's going to help us do incredible work there to help fight trafficking. And, you know, we've got officers in the Ukraine, in Norway, in Denmark, in Sweden, in London, in Greece, in Bulgaria, in South Africa, in Thailand, in Cambodia. And so, I mean, we, like God has really expanded this. We work with every major government agencies. We have our Can You See Me program, which if you get off any major airport today, exactly, it's been rolled out at DFW Airport, but it's mm. at O'Hare, JFK, Heathrow, every major airport in the world. Huge campaigns at baggage carousels that help you to identify the victims of human trafficking. So we've gone from me seeing posters at a baggage carousel to now multiplied tens, if not hundreds of millions of people being informed at baggage carousels on how to identify the victims of human trafficking, huge campaigns for World Cup soccer, all the Olympic games, every airline flying into these is running ads on, can you see me? How to identify the victims of human trafficking? So we really have given it a great shot in 10 years. But what drives me is that girl, why didn't you come sooner? If this is all true, if this is true, if what you're saying about the grace and the beauty and the majesty and the redemption and the glory of this God of yours, where are you? Mm. And I call it my shinless list moment, you know, that moment in the movie where they're trying to give him that award and he's taken off his ring and he's like having this like, why didn't I do more? He's going, this ring could have been 10 more people. This, Mm. I kind of feel like that. Like you go, Chris, you know, you're 52. You seem really urgent. You've got a 16-year-old daughter. (laughs) Um, You know, you seem more passionate now than 30 years ago when I got saved. And it's like, 
that's sort of driven by eternity, that sense of, I don't feel like I'm driven in an unhealthy way. I mean, I feel by God's grace, very healthy, very strong. Our marriage is strong. Our kids are strong. The fact that God gives us the privilege to do this and the fact that I could have been that kid, the fact that I know Jesus can change lives. I know that as the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, if we are not running into the darkness with the light, then what what are we doing on this planet? So to me, I don't have room to get angry or depressed or scream at everyone on Twitter. I'm like, let's just go into the <laughs> darkness. And and yeah. how about we illuminate the darkness with the light and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus and the favour we're getting in countries where there's been historically so much corruption, you know, so much violation of human rights. I have found that's where I need, you know, lucky I believe in signs, wonders and miracles because that's where I'm seeing it all, like favour with governments, opportunities to really shine the light in the pit of hell on earth. I just can't get depressed with some of the stuff I see people yelling about. I'm like, really, really? I mean, if we just got about the Father's business, there is so much good to be done. I mean, the Bible says that Jesus went about doing good. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just get off Twitter yelling bad. And how about we get about the Father's business and do some good on the planet? So anyway, A21 is, I think anyone that goes online and sees it, you will see it's a miracle story. My husband runs it all. Nick is um, a a genius. He's down with the government in Mexico today. Operationally, he runs all of our staff in 15 offices and is just absolutely brilliant. So it's it's a great thing that we get to do this together. Wonderful, wonderful team. Nationals in all of those countries um, and unbelievable, highly skilled and um, brilliant at what they do. Very innovative in our approach to you know, stopping trafficking at its root and different social enterprises that we're doing, as well as awareness and aftercare. Aftercare is what we would be known for um, mm. in many ways. So I love that we get to do that and through Propel Women, just teaching and training of women. We, Propel Women's in 56 countries. We have 43 chapters in Pakistan and what it's doing in Pakistan to just help empower women leaders and to really help women to internalize a leadership identity because they often haven't, especially because of culture. But I think because coming from a Greek Orthodox background, I understand a lot of that mentality. My parents, were from Alexandria, Egypt. So they spoke Arabic at home and friendly when they didn't want us to understand. So <laughs> we had a huge kind of Middle Eastern influence as well as a Greek influence. And because I was sort of an immigrant, uh, from immigrant parents in Australia, we had that journey. And now I'm an American citizen and, you know, I'm an immigrant here. And uh-huh. so it's kind of like, I feel like I could connect with all of those cultures and having an expanse of the gospel from Greek Orthodox to Hillsong and then Wheaton College. It kind of like is the breadth of the the Christian church. So it it sort of gives us a great sensitivity because in some of these countries, I mean, I have to work with the Greek Orthodox Church in Greece. If we're going to stop trafficking, I have to work with, you know, different segments of the church in these nations, uh, 900 million Russian Orthodox people. And I've got offices in Moscow and in Ukraine. You know, we have to, there's no separation of church and state in some of these places. So you've got yeah. to learn to work together. So it's a, it's a great dance that I've learned to do. So I I'm feel sure. like um, we can kind of help with some of that in the current climate in America too. What can an ordinary person who feels compelled by what A21 is doing, broken over the, the whole idea of human trafficking, like how can we participate? What can we do? It's great. You know, Mike, the, the thing that I say is on the A21 website, we've got 21 things of course, I know, A2121, but yes, we have to do that. <laughs> 21 things you can do today that are not 
of any, won't cost you financially anything Mm. from who to write to, what letters to write, how to best advocate, writing to survivors if that's what you want to do. You know, what you can do in your world, in your sphere of influence, because there's nothing worse than making again, shaming people into feeling guilty without empowering them to do anything great and right. be able to change. I think with A21, there's always the activation component because I don't want to shame people because I was ignorant 12 years ago. And then yeah. I was overwhelmed by the enormity of the problem and I had to learn to break it down. And I thought most people want to do some things. Mm-hmm. 21 things to do today. Of course, you know, becoming a partner is, is the most great, the best thing for us in terms of, a lot of people watch Liam Neeson's, you know, Taken and they think, oh, they get all fired up and they go, I've got a particular set of skills. I want to go and use them. And I'm like, (laughs) okay. Um, It would be best to get behind great organizations like us, IJM too. You know, they're our great friends in this space. Um, I've learned so much from them, love them with a passion. Get behind some organizations that have done a lot of the hard work with, because you've got to work with law enforcement. You've got to work in order to be really effective with government. And so look for people that are credible that are doing that and get on board with what's already happening. We've got great intern programs. I've got currently some great interns from Stanford and Princeton, like great. You said, if if it's like law, you want to help advocate change laws, you know, fight for these uh, people, uh, obviously in psychology or psychiatry. I mean, we've got some brilliant, brilliant interns and there's 15 countries around the world. Well, probably after today, there'll be 16. And then we've got another South American country about to come. I'd say by the end of the year, we'll we'll be in 20 countries, every continent. So I'm like, pick your country. There's plenty of ways to be involved. And of course, we're committed to excellence on every level. And I think that's why the governments trust us and and will Mm -hmm. work with us. You know, I don't think ever excellence is the goal of being a Christian. It's a byproduct of being a Christian. I think freedom is what we bring to people. And so we need to be excellent in the way that we do that. But there's never been a greater time on the earth to be light in the midst of darkness or salt in the midst of a very flavorless world. And I think if we just get about the Father's business, we can have such a great impact on this world. Uh, you have already. Uh, and I think the weight of your story is just incredible. And I'm, I'm so glad you shared it with us. And thanks for being with me today. Thanks, Mike. You're awesome. Thank you. First he sings, and then he goes. And what it means, it's hard to know. Make sure you go check out a21.org to find out everything that's happening through the organization and how you can help. Cultivated is a production of Harbor Media and Narrativo. We make podcasts at Narrativo. You can learn more about that at narrativogroup.com. Also, check out cultivatedpodcast.com. Sign up for our newsletter. I write a column for it every other week, and we link to lots of stuff happening online or related to the show. This episode was recorded and edited by TJ Hester. It was mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by Dan Phelps and Roman Candle. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a couple of weeks.